but you got to be willing to work hard because uh, that's what it's going to take. It is supposed to be hard. If it were easy to build truly transformative, impactful companies, we'd have a lot more of them. So I think that's one of the things you screen for is, is do you find people that are able to work hard? You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. My catch-in, appreciate you making time out of your busy schedule to come and catch up with me. Thanks for having me. Fun to catch up. Yeah. Uh, first time together in this new building. We spent a little bit of time together at the old building. Um, You've upgraded your dig since our days at Ivy together. Sitting on the other side of the table now, <laughs> so to speak. It suits you. Look good. Appreciate that. Coming from the event industry, I had to get new clothes. I had t-shirts and nice jeans and running shoes, but I had to upgrade to some blazers. So, Well, it looks great. And um, thankfully, I haven't had to do that yet. So good. I with some jeans and t-shirts. Oh, nice blazers, though. Thank you. So there's a few topics that I wanted to get into today. Uh, one of them is the focus of the conversation I want to get to leveraging a team and growing through your people versus relying on just yourself. But I think it would be helpful just to give people some context. We're in the same graduating class of 2009. You went into management consulting, left management consulting to join. I remember getting the email. You joined a startup, 1,000 Memories. So can you tell me about the leap from how did you make the decision to go from consulting to your first startup at the time? It's a longish story. Hope that's okay. Go for it. Okay. So... I had always wanted to start a business, nearly dropped out of Ivy, just before starting Ivy, um, to start a business where I'd won a business competition. So I'd always wanted to get to that. But for one reason or another, found my way into consulting. And when I got close to the end of my two-year tenure at the firm, decided it was time to start a business. And I spent the last six months uh, working with a friend on a few ideas. And two months before uh, I was set to leave, I got a call from him when he said, Mike, I've decided to go a different direction. I'm going to move to New York and take a job at some investment bank. And I was heartbroken. I felt like I didn't have the experience or confidence to start a business on my own. And I actually decided that I would delay those plans again and get a job in private equity. But unlike most people in private equity, I wasn't doing it to be in private equity. I was only doing it so I could get to know the CEOs of the portfolio companies and learn from them what it was like to build a business. I think that was a uh, fool's plan. But uh, long story short, I got a, a fortunate phone call from some of my very first colleagues at McKinsey who had just moved to California to start a business. And I got a call saying, unsolicited offer, Mike. We'd just gone into this thing called Y Combinator. This was 2010. I don't think anybody knew what Y Combinator was. I didn't know what it was at the time. Um, and they said, you know, come, come build this thing with us if you want. I said, that is absolutely what I should be doing and um, jumped on a plane to move to California. And we spent a few years building that company. Wow. So you joined as, uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were in a business development role, sort of a strategy VP business development role in the beginning. Correct. So what did that look like early days? What did you do as the business guy? Yeah. So <laughs> we had a very different business to what we're in today, which was um, 
online memorials, which is still, I think, a problem that needs solving. You know, God forbid you lose someone, which is a universal experience that you care about. Uh, there is nowhere online that is beautiful and appropriate for memorializing that that person with with other loved ones, and that's what we created, and it was a beautiful product. And we had this belief that it was going to do well with the genealogy community. So everybody's crazy aunt or uncle who is the family historian, the keeper of the family tree. And so the first week I joined A Thousand Memories, I said, I said I'm going to become the expert at the genealogy community. And I hopped on a plane and I went to uh, BYU, uh, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, to learn about the community. This is kind of the heart and soul of where... Uh, Mormonism is based, and there's a huge link between Mormonism and genealogy. And there was a huge conference happening at the at the, at BYU, so I decided it was the best chance I had to go and learn about this space. And I showed up uh, totally green on both genealogy and Mormonism, and made a fool of myself uh, asking for coffee at the BYU campus on day one. But that's how we kind of got our start learning about this space. And and I spent the next few years really trying to cultivate this community building partnerships with all sorts of family history, scrapbooking type communities, mommy bloggers, uh, very different than what we do today with the goal of trying to get the word out about what we were building. And ultimately we, we sold the business to ancestry.com and I think the genealogy bet was a really good one, uh, but it was super random in the early days. So I wanted to get to, so that acquisition happened fairly quickly for, from, my, from memory. I remember you sent a note saying that you were joining and roughly 18 months later, I think the company was acquired by Ancestry. Yeah, correct. So early days, we'll talk about this same case with Wellsimple later on. There's a million things you could be focused on. Focusing on the genealogy community turned out to be the right thing to focus on if you end up getting acquired 18 months later. So how did, how did you make that bet early on that that was going to be the right thing to focus on? Well, I think we were looking to see how people were using the product. And we saw a lot of people using it for family history. You know, it was actually, we built this for memorializing loved ones kind of in the moment. But we found a lot of people were using it to collect old scrapbook type memories and memorabilia and heirlooms about their families. And so that's where this idea for the genealogist came from, was seeing how people were actually using the product and trying to dig into that and understand the data and the kind of client behavior or user behavior that we were seeing. It wasn't like a stroke of genius. It was, hey, this looks interesting. Let's go check it out. And so that's that's where that all came from. Okay, neat. So gets acquired, you move into a product, was it a product role, product manager type yeah. role? And then a country manager type role. When did this itch to actually go out on your own again, start up? Because there's, I was checking out some old, some old emails here. So I have an email from uh, March of 2013 announcing that you're working on a side hustle called Portfolio.me. Yeah. Um, we should still be called Portfolio. Portfolio. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you still have the domain if you've uh, paid your refresher fees. And then maybe six months later, basically, thanks for your feedback. I'm doing another survey. Now it's called Steady Up. Uh, and then another year after that, introduction of Wealthsimple. And if I look at the timeline, so 2013, you were at Ancestry at the time. So how did the idea get going as you were still working at Ancestry? The answer is immediately. You know, we sold the business and I think I was excited and itching. I still hadn't started something myself and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I had to stay at Ancestry or, or there was good reason for me to stay at Ancestry for a year after the acquisition. And it was a perfect opportunity to start exploring ideas. And I tried to build a discipline around that where... 
you know, I had a list that I would force myself to add to every day, at least one new idea. And every week I would have a process where I'd go through my list and try to rank them on, am I excited about this? I'm passionate about the idea, the problem. Do I think it could be big? And do I think I have any business executing, you know, in this category? And over the process of, you know, six months, really refined what I wanted to work on, which was this idea for Wellsimple or Portfolio or Study App, whatever we called it back then. And it was a problem that we were facing. You know, we were fortunate that the team I was working with at the time had just sold a business. They had made a little bit of money that they wanted to invest. And they didn't really like the options available to them in the market. And so it was like the perfect case study of here is a problem that I understand. I'm having it myself. My friends are having it. I think it's real. You know, investing is complicated and expensive for most people. Is there something here that maybe is interesting to work on? And I, I came to fall in love with the concept, which was, you know, investing and being smart about money is the way people end up living the lives they want. It is, uh, as the Dean of Harvard Business School says, you know, there's greater, no greater form of dignity you can offer another human being than financial freedom. And that, that really always resonated with me as this powerful force for good is helping people get access to the tools of financial freedom. And uh, so I love the idea. I had an understanding of it because I had this group that was trying to solve this problem. The part I struggle with is what the hell business do I have starting an investment company? I've never worked in this industry. I've never worked in a regulated business before. And so that's why it took a little while to wrap our heads around actually getting a license and doing kind of uh, the work it takes to launch this business. Cool. So people are quick to talk about, you know, plan A is really the plan. It goes to plan B, C, D. But if I peel back the layers a little bit, maybe you can give us a behind the scenes sneak peek. What, what homework or process did you go through in the very early days? Like what was version one of steady up in 2013? So the first version was Portfolio. And this was a web app we launched that had a series of calculators on it around how much you could save uh, by moving from mutual funds to ETFs and what a good portfolio should look like. And we send it out to some friends. And thank you, Eric, for your early feedback uh, to get a sense of like, does this resonate with people? You know, you couldn't sign up for anything. There was no product to sell. It was just research on, is this a problem that resonates and have we kind of captured, you know, the attention and interest of, of folks that we know? Was it, it was a survey, wasn't it? Or early on, was it just basically trying to get data? Yeah, it yeah. was, what do you do with your investments? Are you interested in doing it better? And do the suggestions we would make through this calculator kind of, do, are they helpful? Would you implement them or not? Because our belief, we didn't want to become an investment manager. We didn't want to have to be regulated, right? So we wanted people to do it themselves. My belief when we started exploring this idea, you should never hire someone to manage your money for you. It's not hard. You should do it yourself. So we were trying to build tools to like empower others to manage their own money. And so that was the idea we were exploring. And we learned from, from Portfolio, people are too lazy, honestly, um, or uninterested or find it too overwhelming or complex to do it themselves. And actually you need to do it for them and make it easy to help people do the right thing. So that was the first insight from portfolios. People love the idea of it, but didn't love the work required to do it properly. And so we use that to iterate on the second concept, which was steady up. This was actually a web app you could sign up for. It tried to make it even easier to do it yourself, where we would send out an email once a month with instructions, which was like, sell this many shares of X, buy this many shares of Y, and you're rebalanced and you're you know on track and you're good. And we sent that out. We probably had 100 people that were on our mailing list for that. We probably had 50 people sign up and use it. They used it month one. They used it month two. 
and then they stopped using it. And we realized, again, it's too much work to ask people to do it themselves, that to really solve the problem, we needed to take the big leap of becoming a regulated money manager and decided then to make that investment, which is why there's a big gap, I think, in your, in your timeline of emails between Steady Up and well Simple launching, because we had to actually go do the proper process. Right. Oh, shoot. People aren't going to do this on their own. We have to build something for them. Exactly. To to do it. Interesting. I remember getting it at the time and it resonated with us because we were, I don't know how many years out of graduating, sort of at that in-between place where it, it feel like you're a little bit beyond going to a big bank and sitting with somebody at a retail bank location to talk about the future options, but not ready to go to a fully, you know, full private wealth management company. So sort of in-between. And for us at the time, it was like, oh, this is interesting. There could be another option where I have a little bit more control. So that's why for us, it, it, it stood out as being interesting. So, well, we might be here because you said it was interesting. Yeah, so sure. thank you for that. Sure. I'll take, <laughs> I'll take full responsibility. No, I will take zero responsibility. So how did you, you ended up making the leap to do it on your own. How did you think about de-risking it? And I'll preface it by saying people, at least I, I see patterns in the way that people do it. Some people do it with saving up money or raising money. And then, you know, okay, I've got a nest. I've got a, I've got some support here. Some people do it with partners. So, you know, me and my two co-founders are committed. I feel comfortable now leaving the thing that I'm at in order to jump in. So what got you to the point, knowing that you were working on this as a side hustle before you jumped in full time, when did you decide was the right point when you were ready to go at it full or? So I hit a bump in the road where... I told you I was at Ancestry for a year and it made sense for me to be there for a year. And a day before a year was up, I walked into my boss's office and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to move back to Toronto and I want to start this great business around helping people invest their savings and achieve great financial outcomes long-term. And he turned to me and said, Mike, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you're 24 or five years old. I forget how old I was exactly at the time. And we're actually looking for someone to run our Canadian business for a year. The, the leader of the Canadian business is going out on mat leave. Uh, we don't have anybody that's going to step in. Why don't you jump in? You know, it's a $30 million revenue business. When are you going to get the chance to step into a, a leadership role of running a $30 million revenue opportunity at this age of your career? It's yours if you want it. I was flattered. And I got taken by this idea, oh, that, that'll be a de-risked way to move back to Toronto and keep working on Well Simple, right? And I took the job and it was immediately obvious it was a mistake. And my partner still reminds me now that she has never seen me more distraught or depressed than that period. And it had nothing to do with the work, but just the, the knowledge that I wanted to be working on something and had delayed it for the wrong reasons because it was de-risking, because it was resume building, because it seemed like a good opportunity rather than the thing I really wanted to be working on. And within a couple of months, I, I had to leave. And um, so ultimately kind of did and left to start Well Simple full time. And um, then kind of worried about de-risking and financing and all the rest of it. And we were lucky. We, we actually raised around pretty early on. A big part of our early challenge and remains a challenge to this day was, was we asked people for their life savings and it's like an enormous ask of trust. And we thought that when we were getting going, we needed ways to build credibility because we were a no name company with no name people that had never worked in this industry. 
And one of the ways we thought we would address that was try to raise a round of funding from like industry titans, <laughs> you know, people that had some credibility, had built businesses in this space. And luckily, kind of, I met someone um, named Sam Safe early on, who was very like-minded about this business and agreed to come on board uh, as a, our first angel investor and really early partner in, in thinking through the business and founding it. And uh, that helped us kind of put together an early round uh, from really great partners that helped us get going with a little bit of capital in the bank, uh, a group of know-how kind of around the table, and, and uh, that's how we, we did it from there. That's great. And you mentioned uh, you have a few co-founders in the business. I know that sounds like you you have a focus as a CEO, you've got co-founders who rounded out your early skill set. So some design expertise and some technical knowledge were, how did you three meet? So Rudy and Brett, um, who are my co-founders are, um, used to be my bosses. So they were the founders of a thousand memories, uh, down in San Francisco, along with a third partner, uh, by the name of Jonathan. And Jonathan and I had, he was my first project manager when I started at McKinsey. So that's how I got to know them was through Jonathan, who invited me to come and work with them down in California. And through working together, Rudy, Brett, and I, you know, became very close friends and partners. And we complement each other's skills well and love to work together. And so when I was getting started with Well Simple, I asked them to come on board and be a part of it. It took a little while to convince them. You know, we were, I moved back to Canada. They're both American. Getting them to kind of get excited about building a business based in Toronto uh, was a challenge. But uh, we ultimately love working together and still do it. That's great. Something that you shared from this morning is that the early days are messy. So in a few minutes, what were those early days like? Was just the three of you? How quickly did you hire? What, what was the word? day one or day 10 like at well simple messy um you know we had uh the er the first person to join the team was a guy named peter graham who is an engineer that was part of our team at a thousand memories who i always say if there's one person i could work with for the rest of my life and be happy it's it's we call him gg uh he's just an, a remarkable um partner and does amazing work and uh, so he moved to Toronto with me and he was American also, and just picked up his bags and came up and we, we started kind of hacking on this thing. And the second was a guy named Dave Nugent, who's a Western grad also, Huron grad. And, um, you know, was our first financial advisor. The only person that worked in the industry, you know, who we needed to get the license and came on board to help build the business. And so that was it. It was this tiny group of people. And when I say it was messy, I mean, the story I told this morning was, we were launching Canada's first digital investment service. And before we launched, the only way to open up an investment account in Canada was through paperwork. Even if you signed up online, the last step, step was to print off 50 pages of paperwork, sign it, mail it, walk it, or fax it into a bank branch, and wait weeks to get the account open. And we knew that if that was our service, like we probably didn't have much of a future as this like, you know, technology-based financial services business. And the problem was we could not find a partner who would work with us to deliver this like frictionless digital onboarding experience. And so we had to figure out like how to do it anyways. And so we had to hack it. And so every day what would basically happen is we'd have clients sign up and we would deliver this great digital onboarding experience to them. They would feel it was done. And then my co-founder Dave and I basically would sit there every night 
and print off every application we got and sign it and either walk it, you know, or, or drive it up to our back office or courier it there so that the next morning those accounts would get opened. And that was what it looked like. It was us hustling, you know, on the phone all day, every day, trying to convince people to sign up every night, printing off mounds of paperwork and signing it and trying to get, you know, accounts opened and then hustling for business. And I think one of the earliest kind of channels we found for growing that was reliable but totally unscalable was events that this like in-person tactile, I can see you and touch, you know, hopefully not touch, but see you experience made people trust us and, and sign up. And so we found that about 20% of the people that came to our events would sign up for accounts and it could be five people in a room and we get one client. Or it could be a hundred people in a room. We get 20 clients. And so my job became do as many events as I can every day. So I would be booked back to back kind of from noon till evening in as many events as we possibly could. And it was that kind of craziness of running around the city all day, doing these events, hopping on a plane across the country, doing events, printing off paperwork every night and manning the phones. <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. So maybe not awesome at the time, but look, <laughs> reflecting back on it, it seems like you have good memories of it. You're lighting up telling the story. So you, see, you, know, you romanticize these early days. Like it was frustrating as hell. I remember how often we would just complain about things would break. Our back office partner wouldn't deliver the data properly. And so our clients were seeing, you know, investment returns that made no sense and that erodes trust and we didn't control it, but they would think it was our fault. And we couldn't do anything about it. And like enormous amounts of frustration, but also those are the fun parts you remember of like people leaning in and just, you know, brute forcing solutions. You can't brute force solutions at the kind of scale we're at now often anymore. Um, but it's fun when you have like total accountability and you just have to make it work. So let's talk about what changes because, um, in my own experience, I found that every time, whatever you're working on roughly three X's in size for me, that was revenue. Everything that worked for the last stage didn't work for the new stage. So growing from zero to 1 million in revenue requires a certain skill set, And then the founder can't just push the boulder anymore. So you bring on people and you think you have things figured out and then you get to be on three and it breaks, then you get to 10 and it breaks again. And so what can you think about what, what changed from those early days to say the first inflection point for you? I can definitely, um, I, yes, that is definitely my experience too. Um, and I think it never stops. I think you have to reinvent the company almost and yourself every six months or so, or every 12 months as you grow. You know, I think the first inflection point that really comes to mind is when we were probably around like 20 to 30 people, which is when it really changed from being that small group around the table of everybody pitching in on everything. The only thing that matters, you know, we used to have this whiteboard in the office, which was, we had four or five columns, which were the stages in our onboarding funnel. And the goal was like, can we move five names from, you know, the column on the left to the column on the right every week? And then it was 10 names and then 20 names. And it was, you know, that kind of hustle. Uh, but when you have 20 or 30 people, you start having to put in place certain structures. Some of the people that are starting to join you are, you know, still, it's still the early days and they're still like mission warriors, but you start to have a little bit more of this, you know, career orientation. What are the opportunities for me here? You know, if you've been here for more than a year, am I going to get a promotion? So that's the first part where it starts to feel more like a company. And then, then you get to like 70 people or 80 people and 
you've got to start figuring this stuff out for real. You've got to have career paths and levels. And that's a huge transition, I think, for entrepreneurs because like for me in the early days, I used to have a feeling that titles don't matter. You know, we're going, you know, every day is a fight for survival. Call yourself whatever the hell you want and uh, it doesn't matter. Um, make yourself feel great. And that broke at 75 people when you needed titles and you needed a little bit of structure to help people understand their place in the ecosystem and how to grow. And that doesn't mean hierarchy, but it just means a little more structure to things. And now we're at 300 people and you know we, we broke something at around 250 where whatever we were using before stopped working. And, and I think the, the latest iteration has been around communication. That it used to be everybody was around the table and would always know what was going on. I'd have lunch with everybody in the company every single day and we'd talk about the company. And so there were no questions that were unanswered. There were no confusions about how I felt about things, for example. At 300 people, there are people that I don't know very well. I've met everybody, but there are people I don't know very well. And I have to say the same thing 10 times before I'm confident that the whole company has heard it. And it's a different kind of thing. And it's taken us a little while to kind of overcome this latest iteration. And my guess is we're going to feel really good about it in six months, and then it's going to break again. So it's it's a constant struggle of figuring out those those different iterations as you grow. Yeah. So how did you, you seem to be very, at least in my in my homework, very thoughtful about the people that you brought on? And uh, there was an article from I don't know if it was a year ago or a few years ago when you were it must have been a few years ago. You were maybe fifty to sixty people, and you had spent most of your time actually doing the recruiting yourself. So how did you do that? Like how even getting to sixty people is a, a big accomplishment. What did you do to make sure that you got the right people? I think it is, um, I mean, I learned this from the founders of Airbnb that hired, I think, even more than that. I think they hired the first 300 or something, um, personally. I think it's one of the most important tasks for a founder or a founder CEO. Getting good at hiring, making it an exciting place to be, selling the vision and the story so you get, you know, to pick great talent to be a part of this thing. And um, I thought it was so important that I dedicated, you know, at least 50% of my time in the early days to hiring. And I was only able to do that because I had great partners that could lead other parts of the business that I didn't have to lead. So, you know, Brett was running our engineering organization and operations and Rudy was doing the designing and, and branding and marketing. So that freed me up to, to focus on that, um, which at the time felt like the most important thing in the business. And if I uh, bring my sales framework to it, so I talk about when you're going after clients, there's seeds, nets, and spears. And seeds and nets are, talk about seeds as maybe some of the PR you do, the stories that people read about you. Nets would be getting people to come in and actually apply to the jobs. And then Spears being, ooh, you know, mm. Nugent would be good as a as an advisor or financial advisor. We should get him. So in those early days, did you how much time or how much focus did you spend on Spears? Spears? Strictly Spears. Strictly Spears. And that was a mistake. It's hard to, you know, it's hard when you have a wide net to find great talent in it. And you need a good process to figure out how to find, when you look at an application, what is an application that is good, but also is a good fit for your particular firm and culture and what you're trying to build. And I found it a little overwhelming in the early days. And I focused almost exclusively on Spears, which I think is, 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 a, is a powerful thing when you're early enough, when, you know, engineers, for instance, they get cold calls all day, every day from recruiters. 
And so by being the CEO and reaching out and taking my time to do it thoughtfully was a way to stand out from the pack. And I think that that investment enabled us to really be targeted and thoughtful and get people excited. You know, it's fun to hear from a CEO. Um, and if you've got the seeds out there of press and people are starting to hear your name and know about you and the CEO reaches out, it feels special versus a recruiter or some recruiting firm. And so that's one of the ways that we tried to use me, the fact that I was running recruiting to get great talent. But we also, I should have paid more attention to, to, the, to the net. There are several examples of people that I missed that applied that we got lucky we ended up getting in the end. I remember our very first CTO, a guy named Carney, applied for a job. And, you know, he had the dream resume for an early stage company, you know, had been at Amazon for 10 years, had built their very first distribution system, you know, architecture, and it was like deep technologist and a financial services nerd, like a personal finance nerd, just perfect on paper. And I missed it. And uh, only because he happened to know another founder in the ecosystem and got him to write me a note personally and say, Mike, like, what the hell are you doing? You, you got to pay attention to this, this application. Did we end up interviewing him? And he became a very important kind of early partner in the business and scaling and building our engineering team. It happened recently with our chief people officer who applied for a job, uh, sent me a note on LinkedIn, which I missed. Mm -hmm. And only luckily did she follow up again by email that we ended up catching things and, and ended up hiring her. So you got to pay attention to the nets, um, but we definitely focused on the spears in the early days. Got it. And the systems, how did you or do you now figure out how to filter through those nets? So there's got to be a combination of right fit for the culture, right skill set for the role. They're like assessment or questions or interviews. What's your process to figure out who the right person is? Our process evolves um, and it you know, has evolved a lot since I was leading recruiting and it continues to evolve today. Now we have a great dedicated team that focuses on it. And it generally follows like a series of steps. There's a first phone call with a, with a, our recruiters, and really they're just trying to assess fit. You know, I used to say if I pick up the when I was running recruiting, I'd pick up the phone and try and speak to someone. And the question I was asking was, is this someone I ever want to speak to again? You know, and if the answer was yes, then they would immediately get the check mark on the first stage of the short phone call process. It's deliberately short to try and not waste too much time. You know, on uh, the, the noise and find the signals, right? Uh, so you're looking for your first signal and then you move on to your next step, which is do they have the technical chops uh, to really do what's required of the role? Uh, and then you would, if they do, so there's someone that seems interesting on first pass of someone you'd want to spend time with, uh, they have the technical chops to do the role, then you invest the real time in understanding their background and understanding their cultural kind of values and how they fit in um, and understanding whether or not they really are a fit for for what you're trying to do. So say, I'm going to move down the funnel. So you've brought somebody on. Do you have a process that you set them up for success? Do you have a, a way that you onboard them to make sure that they feel like they're ready to go and contribute to Symbol? Yeah, I think... Um, we have a pretty robust onboarding process now, which is, you know, your whole first week at the company, every minute of it is is almost kind of orchestrated and designed to give you an amazing experience and to ramp you up. It's a big, steep learning curve. And so, you know, we have presentations from all the leaders in the business. I, I come in and I do a, a, a talk on kind of the founding story and the mythologies of the business and try and that's very important to me that I always continue to do that. Um, I think it's a great chance to meet everybody who's starting and also make sure we, I hate to use the word, but indoctrinate in some ways, kind of the mythologies of the business, which is important for culture. 
And then you have a rotation on like client service and get to know our clients. And we try to have make sure people have empathy for the problems in our product where clients are running into issues and friction so that if you're going on and your job is going to be to go fix them on the engineering team or on the design you know, team or what, wherever it is that you're going. And so we have a pretty you know, structured onboarding process, which I think is a really effective tool for integrating new, new folks to the team. Talk about um, transition to some challenges. I found that startups are it's almost they say a marathon not a sprint but it's not even really like a marathon it's like a series of sprints over and over again and sometimes uh you know you get you feel like you're actually are getting everything if you've done it right you're getting everything out of your people and then just around that quarter is the next you know mile or 100 miles that we've got to continue to sprint any advice on how do you continue to get more out of people who are already giving so much yeah, I wish you could tell me the answer to that. <laughs> uh, I agree. I think, I think it's tough to get the balance right because the reality for a startup is you are default dead, and it require you know the number of startups that fail is staggeringly high, and it takes a Herculean effort to will something into existence against all the odds, even if you have a product people love, you know. It's still, you got to build a business around that. And that's not an easy thing to do. And it's really tough. It's really tough. And I think that you've got to figure out the way to do it in a way where you're not burning out yourself. You're not burning your team out. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with how you talk about things like work-life. We call it work-life fit, not work-life balance at our company. Some people love to work hard. I'm one of them. And this idea of you know, you have to set certain hours or balance is one that never really resonated with me, you know, forcing that on someone else. But this idea of fit, you've got to find the thing that works for you or the setup that works for you, where you incorporate the work and the personal and the whatever in the, in the, in the recipe that makes sense for your life. But you got to be willing to work hard because uh, that's what it's going to take. It is supposed to be hard. If it were easy to build truly transformative, impactful companies, We'd have a lot more of them. So I think that's one of the things you screen for is, is do you find people that are able to work hard? I think one of the things we're talking a lot about in our business now is the, the importance of working smart as you scale. Because one of the things that's becoming really important is how do you decouple your growth in, in revenue and business from your growth in headcount? You want to be able to grow your revenues multiples faster than you do your headcount. And that's where real scale in software comes from. And so it's not about throwing more bodies at problems. It's about throwing, you know, technology and good process and smart thinking around how to solve problems. And um, that's one of the things that's a big conversation for us now is transitioning from being at a stage where you could brute force, where, you know, an extra five hours here and there could like make a meaningful difference on the numbers to having to be thoughtful and work smarter and create more scale, which is something that we're, we're kind of in that phase of thinking about and working on. But I, I don't think that was true you know, a few years ago because trying to think too much about scale when you have none you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have been helpful for us at that stage. Right. That I've, might not have been, that might have been no. a non-answer. It's, it's a tough one. It's not, uh, it's not a question that I know the answer to. <sighs> so I was putting it out there as a, really, uh, as a purposefully, not ambiguous, but it's a, it's a really hard one to answer. So I found it hard to think about putting aside thinking time when you're in it. Now I get reminded from my 
friends and partner who's still in the middle of it, when I get to reflect on a little bit of the space that I've created now, thinking time, and I talk about that with my partner, she will often remind me what it's like, <laughs> very point blank, remind me what it's like to be in the middle of it. I'll say that, but you've always struck me as someone who seems to make time to think. At least when you're present, you're here. You've got a million things on the go, but you're here right now. And even over the course of our friendship, it seems like you've always been someone who's very clear in his thinking and made time to purposefully think. Is that a conscious effort? And how do you do it if you do? Well, thank you for the compliment. Um, I'd say I ebb and flow. I, I like to create thinking time. And one of the practices I um, started when I was in California after selling the business, when I was like deliberate, I've, I want to start a business, I got to come up with ideas, was I would sit at a coffee shop first thing in the morning for an hour or two by myself with no laptop, with a journal and a book. And I found it to be like meditative and productive and enormously helpful as I was thinking through that stage of my life and problem that I wanted to work on. And it's a practice I've tried to keep up. So I still, to this day, I try to start every day with one to two hours of thinking time with a book and a notebook at a coffee shop. My hit rate these days is not as good as it used to be, but in my calendar every morning, I have blocked from eight to 10 a.m. to do that. And I try uh, as best I can to stick to it. And um, I find it like enormously helpful. When I stick to it, I'm always happy that I, that I am because I feel like my thinking is clearer and I come, I show up at work with more energy and conviction and thoughtfulness. But it's hard when you get into the grind sometimes of creating space for it. And are you, when you, are you thinking about a problem? problem? Is it premeditated? Like I'm going to sit for an hour and think about this thing? Are you journaling on a topic? What do you do in that hour, hour and a half? Usually not. I mean, sometimes I will and I'll go in and I'll have the journal open and just be thinking about this particular problem. Most often I go in and I'm, I'm reading a book or, you know, some essay or article that I have saved a million of that I'm trying to work my way through and it's sparking ideas or making me reflect. I find that that like unstructured thinking time is actually the best. And, you know, you, you hear about this from folks and I am not like a, a Steve Jobs. Uh, I don't equate my, my style or my ability anywhere like someone like that. But even him, you know, his unstructured thinking time walking, you know, in Palo Alto, California, and how he talks about the effectiveness that had in him as a leader at Apple. Like, I think, I think there's value to this idea of unstructured time alone without an agenda and without trying to be too purposeful about where, where your thoughts take you. Hmm. So if anybody ever sees you in Toronto, I just imagine people looking at, I think that's Mike Katchen and it's weird. He's just sitting there without his <laughs> phone. What's he doing? He's just sitting there. So you're just, yeah. just thinking through or reading, not on your phone, not catching up on email, not making phone calls. Yeah, I try. I try. Yeah, that's great. There's a great book that I read recently called Deep Work by Cal Newport. And he talks about, I've got a timer on my desk, but I... I try to at least get one of those sessions in a day of 90 minutes where I'm just focused on a particular task. Hard to do. I think that's really valuable though. I think it's, you know, there's this, I don't believe anybody is productive at all hours of the day, hundred percent through, but the perception is you have to be, or you're supposed to be. And so you like force yourself into very unproductive. I haven't read the book, but imagine a lot of the principle is how do you carve out the specific time you need and focus to do one thing really well every day. 
you know, I think Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says, if I can make three decisions a day, it's a successful day. Hmm. You know, he's not saying I need to make a decision every hour. If I can do three things or one thing really well today, that'll move the needle for the business. Like, what else do I really need to do today? Uh, and I think figuring what out, whatever your cadence is, and I think it's different for everybody, uh, is important. That's good. So a lot's on the go for you personally. I know you've got a little one at home. Uh, has that been a forcing function to help you sort of narrow in on just the most important things as well? Totally. If you don't make time for family, you know, it's the thing that suffers the most. And I wouldn't be able to live with myself if, you know, I wasn't. It's the the joy of my life is my time with my family. And uh, and so creating space for that, you know, I, I try. The easiest time for me is, is around bedtime. So I try and leave the office every day around five o'clock if I'm in town so that I can give her dinner and put her to bed. And then if I'm working again, I'm working again after she's in bed at seven o'clock. And talking about work-life fit, you know, I work really hard, but I find the schedule that enables me to fit in you know, the things that are most important to me in, in, in my structure, in my life. Yeah, that's great. Wrap up here in a few minutes. What are you most excited about right now? Could be personal, professional. I mean, honestly, I'm uh, like, really, I've never felt more excited about the business we're building. <laughs> it's, uh, there is uh, so much momentum right now and just so much more opportunity in front of us that it feels like we have endless number of fun and big and exciting and challenging things to work on that um, it's just really a fun stage. You know, We have evolved our business in the last year to become much more than just an investment company. Uh, we're trying to help people become a full service kind of financial partner to our clients as they navigate all of the financial choices of their life. And so we launched a, you know, a uh, discount brokerage business that helps people trade stocks. We, we launched a tax service through an acquisition. We just announced the launch of a, a saving and spending service, which is uh, really something we're pretty proud of. And so like, it just, I feel pretty giddy. I've never felt as giddy as I do right now about where we're trying to go and the team we put together. Like I have a lot of confidence in, in what we're doing and where we're going. And just also like the humility to know that we're just scratching the surface on where we want to get to. And uh, I feel super excited about that. Yeah. It's been a fun journey to follow. You know, I, I thought, I thought I knew what wealth simple was, but recently with your new products and services, I, I get it more and more. So I, I don't know exactly yet where it's going to end up, but it, it's making more and more sense to me as the story unfolds. And uh, I think you've built an amazing company and an amazing team. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Is Last question. Is there anything else that uh, the community can do for you? So most of our listeners are younger entrepreneurs, a lot still in school, um, and we've got a big alumni network that also listen. Is there anything that we can do to help you or WellSimple? I'd leave you with maybe three messages. Um, the first is sign up. <laughs> we love your business and we'd love to hear from you if you have feedback. We are trying to build something pretty special and we, we depend on feedback to make it great. We'd love to hear from folks. The second is we're hiring and I think uh, love to hear from really smart people that care about what we're building and are trying to do that. And the third is is a less selfish one. And I mentioned this in the talk this morning that I think that Ivy is an incredible network and this is an amazing community and the entrepreneurs here already are doing amazing things. One thing I would push us all to do more of is to think bigger. It is uh, not a Canadian thing to do and we need to change that. I'm someone who is deeply passionate and appreciative of being here in Canada and being Canadian. 
And I worry about our future if we do not figure out how to dream bigger, build really big companies that propel our prosperity for years to come in the future. And um, my favorite analogy on this is, is when, we, when we turn our minds to winning, we're actually pretty good at it. You know, I remember when we were in Ivy, uh, Dean was Carol Stevenson, who went on to chair the Vanock Olympic community, Committee that had or was on the board of that committee that was they owned the podium year for the Olympics. Like how un-Canadian is that? Let's go own the podium, be the best in the world. And you know what happened? We won. You know how good it felt? It felt great. And uh, people think it's un-Canadian to think that way. And I, I think we need to just shed that. So my challenge to the community for the sake of all of us is to really build wonderful communities uh, of companies and to think as big as you can about the impact you want to have. I think we will all benefit from that for years to come. That's great. Mike, I'm going to get you on the road. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Take care. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.